A reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 2, starting with verse 1. This is what Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. A reading from the letter to the Romans, chapter 13, starting with verse 11. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 24, starting with verse 36. But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The word of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Well, I repeat what Sam said. Happy New Year. I love that we start with Advent rather than jumping right into heavenly angels in the sky singing glory, glory, or jumping right into the the calendar year with um, Easter, which would kind of make sense though, wouldn't it? But as, as this calendar was formed all those hundreds of years ago, I love that it starts with Advent, that we take time working up to Christmas, that um, 
Advent draws our attention back to the words of the prophets, back to the promise, to the waiting, the longing of God's people. And so we prepare our own hearts, recognizing in ourselves, if we pay attention during Advent, to recognize the longings of our own hearts, recognize our need for Messiah. It prepares us to rejoice anew as we remember the promises, the waiting, the longing, to rejoice anew at his coming, at his incarnation, and to cling to the hope of his coming again. We have three really interesting texts this morning, and we're going to talk about all three of them a little bit, starting with the prophet Isaiah. Probably at least part of that text you've heard before, maybe in other contexts, but it's a familiar one to us. What I'd like to do before we jump into that, though, is back up just a little bit to look at what Isaiah said right before he said these words of promise. What he, what he said before was addressed to um, the authorities, the leaders in Jerusalem, and they were words of judgment. He was calling them out and used vivid imagery to describe them. Um, Things like one who is sexually unfaithful, silver contaminated with impurities, watered-down wine. They love a bribe, enriching themselves without any care for the plight of widows or orphans, those without resources, those with no voice in the society, and certainly those who are powerless in the face of corruption. That's what Isaiah starts out with, addressing the sin of Jerusalem, the sin of the leaders of Jerusalem, and talks about the shaking that will happen because of that sin. The answer to Israel's sickness is Yahweh's judgment. But judgment isn't just about punishment. We sort of recoil a little bit at that word, and I think part of that is a result of just, just our cultural context when judgment seems to be only about punishment. Um, the United States has more incarcerated people per capita than any country in the world. It seems to, it seems to speak to maybe not a robust commitment to rehabilitation or restoration. And so we bring that lens to this, to this text, when we read about judgment. But the word for judgment in Hebrew speaks to order. And in the Old Testament, the judges brought God's order back to the people. It can also speak to blueprint or custom. It has to do with things that are rightly ordered, put in their proper position, functioning well. God's judgment is bringing his divine order to the world. In that context, judgment is good news. All that is disordered in the world is being rightly ordered. So we hear in today's text, in this reading from Isaiah 2, in days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest mountains, and shall be raised above the hills. 
All nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. You know, in the ancient world, mountains were considered to be the place where the gods dwelled. And so again, using this beautiful poetic imagery, Isaiah tells us that the mountain of Yahweh will be the highest, is the highest of all mountains, because God is the one true God, loftier than any other, greater than any other. And to this mountain, people will stream. Many nations will stream. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. This mountain of the Lord is a a new kind of Sinai, the place where God speaks. And from that place, his teaching will go out. We'll learn and walk. It's a very active image, isn't it? It's not a static relationship. It's not a static just come to this place. But you come, you learn the ways of the Lord, and then you walk in them. John Oswald says, salvation is not a position, it's a walk. And in that walk, we are being made more human, more thriving in the ways that God intended. It's interesting here that there's an emphasis on all nations in this book of Isaiah. That's a new thing. And it's important to to pick up on that multi-ethnic nature of the verses, something unique in the ancient world. The idea that these warring nations and tribes would be at peace is extraordinary. The idea that we, with our warring nations, could be at peace is extraordinary. And this vision of Isaiah isn't just a cessation of hostilities. It's not each little group drawing back into their bubble, um, drawing a line in the sand to to differentiate our places and, and staying within our boundaries. It's a beating of the implements of war and death into implements of life and cultivation. He says beating of swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. Neither shall they learn war anymore. We have this juxtaposition. When we learn the ways of the Lord and walk in them, we don't learn war. We don't learn hostility. We don't learn the taking of life in whatever form or fashion that may be. They shall learn the ways of the Lord and walk in his path. Augustine writes, The central place they are all coming to is Christ. He is at the center because he is equally related to all. Anything placed in the center is common to all. That just struck my heart when I read it earlier this week. Jesus is in the center And anything in the center is common to all that it touches. 
So all of us being drawn to the Lord are equal, have in common our center, which is Christ. So what does this mean? What does this mean for us? Many biblical scholars today see these verses as referring to the second coming of Jesus. That's the way I've often read them. However, earlier Christians, including the early church fathers, interpreted this as a messianic prophecy with Jesus as the prophecy's ultimate fulfillment, that Isaiah was prophesying the coming of Christ. Therefore, in that reading, the verse refers to a present reality in Christ. This isn't just a vision, a dream of something that, that may, that will happen in the future. It's a present reality we can live in as we come to Christ, as we learn from Him, as we walk in His ways. This season of Advent draws us to uh, consideration, to some contemplation. And as Isaiah calls out to God's people, these people of promise who were in that moment living far from it, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And they had a choice then. How would they walk? The call resonates through, through the ages to us. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Reverend Fleming Rutledge says that Advent tells us about our own lives as Christians here and now. Advent is where we live, she says, where we live, work, play, laugh, struggle, and die. Advent is the time between, between the first coming of Christ and the second coming, between darkness and dawn, between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Advent is the in-between time. So we're really living in Advent all our days until the Lord comes again in this place between the first and the second. And so we look at this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He's writing to people who are living in the between time as well, just as we are. And he's urgently reminding them to wake up, to watch, to wait for Jesus to be revealed. The waiting for this body of believers, the waiting for us is not a sitting around. It's not passive. It's not static. We learn and we walk to echo Isaiah. We expect Jesus. And in our learning and in our walking, we participate with him in the bringing of his kingdom, in the realization of his kingdom. Christians affirm that because of Jesus' resurrection, the world is now a different place. Living in a new world, in a new kingdom, in a new kind of time, requires a reordering of our lives. Paul says the opening of this, you know what time it is. And he describes what sounds like this time between that Fleming Rutledge wrote about. The night is nearly over. The day is nearly here. It's not either one. 
It's not the dead of night. Daylight is not here. It's the cusp of something, the brink of something. I suspect Paul imagined that um, the return of Jesus would happen very quickly, very quickly that he would see in his time. He may never have anticipated millennia passing. Maybe we don't anticipate millennia passing. It's a different kind of relationship with time. But here we are right now on the cusp of a new day, a new day assured by the reality of the resurrection. The world is a new place. God has acted once and for all. Rutledge again says, the whole structure of the gospel is founded and built upon the lordship of the crucified, risen, victorious Christ, who was able to make his servants stand and not fall. I love that as, as we think about how do we live in this new world, in this new, this new time, this new kingdom. We do it by allowing God to reorder our lives, our interior lives and our exterior lives. So do you remember the description of the word for judgment in Hebrew that speaks of a reordering and a restoration? Again, we kind of have that visceral reaction to hearing the word judgment, to what we think it means. We live in this new world by leaning into God's judgment. Yeah, that sounds pretty terrible, doesn't it? <laughs> Nobody smiled when I said that. But again, it's back, it's back to that idea we have of judgment is just punitive. We have, in our cultural context, the idea that it, that it has to do with uh, being separated, locked away, isolated, with no hope of restoration. And so I invite you to look at judgment as God's reordering this morning, that it's necessary and it's a part of his revelation of himself to us. Here's an analogy. Um, I know some of you have just had the flu earlier in the week. Our granddaughter had RSV a couple of weeks ago. I, uh, we have a, a preschool program at the, the church where I serve. So it's like a little science experiment, right? With kids bringing every kind of bug and, and thing into, into that space that I spend a lot of time in. So there's COVID still floating around and colds and flu and RSV. And sometimes it's just that, the doctor says, it's just that thing that everybody has. <laughs> we don't really have a name for it. It's just, it's just that thing that's going around. But if you're unwell and you go to the physician hoping that their work will make you healthy and whole, it's necessary to open yourself up for examination, for judgment for them to examine and poke and prod and maybe scrape. Only something that is revealed can be healed. Judgment is this process of bringing something into the light so that it can be dealt with and healed.
Judgment is not punishment. It's examination for healing. We have all kinds of fears about that, don't we? About going to the doctor, even. Um, if, if you have little ones, although you know that, that they will be helped by that process, they are not eager to go. Sometimes I think for us, we get a little uh, over-imaginative and have symptoms that we, the, we imagine the worst of. What if, what, if it's, what if it's something terrible? We have these fears of what we'll find in ourselves. And we have fears about what the treatment will be, what the shaking will be that helps us to be healthy. And so I think, I think part of this leaning into judgment is reminding ourselves that our physician is the great physician who is not only knowledgeable, who knows everything about us, created every cell in our body. He understands every part of our condition and is also the one who walks through it with us, has compassion for us, and cares for us. Judgment is to bring things to light so that they can be healed. I love these words, actually, from Father Preston as he was, he was talking about this. And he said, it's so very important that we remember the nature of God and our baptismal identity. That's why we immerse ourselves in Scripture, spiritual disciplines like prayer and fasting, gathering Sunday after Sunday and singing songs of redemption and hope and salvation, reciting the creed, coming to the table, blending our lives in community, and confessing our sins. We actively choose to daily remind ourselves of who God is and who we are in Him. It's learning from Him and walking with Him. Sometimes I think we really rather prefer that that the healing process be uh, covert, subversive, that it just kind of happen in us without our active participation in it. But it doesn't work that way. I think as Paul is giving us this list of things to run from when we turn from darkness and run to light, he gets really specific about some of those things that, that we are to run from. The thing is, those behaviors are ways that we hide, often from ourselves. We hide the places where we need God's touch, the places where we need his healing, the places in us we need the light to shine. And so, as he lists drunkening, drunkenness, drunkening, that's a new word, drunkenness, you know, a means of escape, of numbing ourselves, of not looking at the thing that is painful. Sexual immorality, the careless use of somebody else's body with no thought for sacrificial love. Again, either a numbing or a way in the moment to feel something, but an escape from the thing that needs to see the light to be touched by God. Dissension, jealousy, mm. the ways that we denigrate each other to make ourselves feel better. 
God's judgment, his examination of us, reveals those disordered places within us and brings healing. Paul calls us to put away the things of darkness, the ways we've tried to make ourselves whole, and to walk in the light. We're on this cusp. There is darkness fading away. The light has not come. And he just encourages us, don't step back into the darkness. Run toward the light. And then he uses language of clothing. Clothe yourself with Christ. Cover yourself. All that he sees and heals and touches, all the things that you're ashamed of, of, the wounded places, clothe those in the light of Christ, in the healing of his presence. Rutledge, again, there's a theme here. Rutledge writes, Every step we take in this world is a step toward either darkness or light. Every harsh word, every mean act, every vengeful thought is part of the works of darkness. Every act of forgiveness, every small act of charity, every temptation resisted is a piece of the armor of light. I love that. Every act of forgiveness, every small act of charity, every temptation resisted. Not that you won't be tempted, but every temptation resisted is a piece of the armor of light. And it is Christ who is able to make his servant stand and not fall. It's God who strengthens us to put on the armor of light. We don't have to do it in and of ourselves. If we could, we would have already, rather than indulging in the deeds of darkness. It is God, the one who loves us, the one who stepped into flesh for us, who gives us the strength to walk. And then we come to our gospel reading, and it reminds us, again, to stay awake, to be aware This is an an interesting passage and has um, um, a very specific connotation from from my life growing up, and maybe yours as well. Depending on your your church background, this this passage may carry some some very, very vivid memories for you. If you grew up in evangelicalism, you might have some strong feelings when you hear phrases like one taken, the other left. If you've come to faith during the, the Jesus movements of the 60s and 70s, I know you're familiar with a, a Larry Norman song that included the lines, two men walking up a hill, one disappears, one left standing still. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. Uh, films and books created a a subculture industry, really, of this interpretation of this scripture. And one of the things that that was taught is that the things in this world are going to get really, really, really bad, and the Christian hope is that we get to escape it. If, um, If we get our hearts right and are ready, then we'll be taken and not left behind. But let's look again at what Matthew has written that the Lord said. The problem with with that interpretation is that it 
doesn't fit with the larger Christian story. The Christian story about not getting, about things not getting really, really bad and some people escaping, but rather it's about a God who desires to heal and restore a broken world. The story of scripture is not about escape, but about healing. And so let's look at this gospel today as a reading not about escape, but about healing. Jesus is not saying, get things right so you disappear and don't get left behind. Let's look at the, at the context. It opens up saying, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. The context of what he says is in this, in this story of Noah and what happened with Noah and his family. And what was that? Everyone except Noah and his family was taken away. They were spared. Everybody else was swept away. So being taken away is not a good thing. It means that the flood got you. The ones who are left behind are the ones who reveal God working things out in the midst of a sinful world. Noah and his family are saved. They are the ones who are left behind to fulfill the promise. Jesus says, there will be a day when two men will be in a field. One will be swept away, the other left. There will be two women grinding a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Again, if we, if we look at the context of the story of Noah, the idea in this passage is that you don't want to be taken. Throughout history, Christians have affirmed the second coming of Christ He'll return in glory. We confess it in the creeds. It's the great Christian hope. It's what we long for in this Advent season. And we can definitely read Jesus' words as a foreshadowing of the end of things. But we need to remember that the trajectory of the Christian story is a God who returns to heal and restore, not to initiate an evacuation plan. The end of the passage says, If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So what is Jesus saying here? There are several possibilities. I'm going to share some of them with you. Some have suggested that Jesus isn't referring to uh, the end of days at all here. Others have said that, that much of this section of Matthew refers to events of 70 AD. And a third option held out by some of the church fathers is that Jesus is telling his disciples that they must prepare for their deaths. Maybe they're all true in some way. But let's look at that first option, that it's a, a reference to something cataclysmic that's going to happen. Perhaps Jesus is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome in 70 AD. 
He's prophesying a moment when they would finally see the climax of the tension between Rome and Judea. Something devastating is going to happen that changes the world, that would feel like the end of the world for them. Faith itself would be in a crisis because the destruction of the temple was was the destruction of the place where heaven and earth came together for them. The place where God resided was destroyed. It wasn't just a a center of faith. It wasn't just a building. It was the place that heaven heaven and earth came together. The closer you were to the temple, the closer you were to God. So this destruction sent shockwaves through the community, through the society. And would people begin to doubt God, to doubt his faithfulness because his house, the place where he, desi- he, he resided, was no longer with them? It had to have been so disastrous that it felt like the end of the world for those people. And yet, in that shaking and what feels like destruction and, and the end of, of all promise, the Son of Man is shown as triumphant. We can look back. People who often rejected Jesus because he didn't line up with the, the temple practices, with the temple way of doing things, they see now that he is who he says he is. He is the Son of God, the Son of Man. He says here that nobody knows when it's going to happen, but that it would happen within a generation, and life was going to go on as as normal until it did happen, until the very last minute. We experience shakings, cataclysmic events in our lives, losses, things that feel like the end of the world to us. And that is where we find the Son of God. That is where we find the Christ with us in those places. And so so if this particular passage is Jesus talking to his disciples about this event that's going to happen, prophesying the destruction of the temple, how do we then read it as something for our lives? And I think much like those people for whom the temple was the thing they clung to, there are, there are things that we cling to, ways that we establish our identity, the things that make us feel um, purposeful or worthwhile, the things that give us meaning. And they can be very, they can be good things. They can be, they can be good works that you do. They can be the way, the way you provide for your family, money. Um, it can be your reputation. The things that we cling to apart from Christ cannot wear the, bear the weight of our expectation. They cannot bear the weight of providing us identity. They cannot bear the weight of our hope because they can be gone in a moment. And you may have experienced some of that. The children of Israel trusted in the temple, and it was right for them to do so. It was a signpost to God's presence. 
And yet when God stepped into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, he was revealed as the new temple, the new place where heaven and earth meet. Many of God's people couldn't see him for who he was. He didn't fit into the system. And so their, their lives were reordered and restructured. So we look at, at Israel, at the words of Isaiah. We're living in this in-between time, and Isaiah calls us to walk in the light. Paul, in his letter to Rome, calls us to walk in the light, to put away the deeds of darkness, the ways that we try to heal ourselves, to make ourselves okay. And Jesus, in his gospel, gives us a warning to be alert, to not put our, our hope in the things that will be shaken and taken away. We learn from him, we walk with him, and we live in the hope that all, all will be made new. Amen.